The Western media knows Americans have notoriously short attention spans. And now that the Ukraine war has faded from view, what, if anything, can be done to end the incredible bombardment? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. From today's news headlines, Russia is resuming its winter strategy of pounding Ukraine into submission with missiles and drones. But Kyiv finds itself in a far more tenuous position this year as resources run low and more Western assistance is up in the air. War is always uniquely profitable. It doesn't matter which side. The weapons industry reaps financial rewards of unbelievable levels. Why would anyone want peace? Well, aside from the people on the ground doing the dying, what's the incentive? There are a couple of disastrous wars being waged right now. Of course, Ukraine and Gaza. Is either one any closer to peace? What, if anything, may actually turn off the killing machines? Nations talk about peace, especially those who have representation in the United Nations. But has anything ever done about it? Is there not just cause to forget about peace, throw up our hands and give up, let the spoils just go to the victor and move on? Is talk of ending such wars as now raged just Pollyannish? Were we derided? We were derided as peace creeps many years ago, those of us who took to the streets in loud demand for an end to the American war in Vietnam. But in fact, history shows, despite the dismissive mocking, we did end it. Don't loud voices matter on Ukraine or Russia? I wonder. Can the incredible devastation continue as I speak in both Ukraine and Gaza without end? In fact, both seem to get more intense with each passing day. What, if anything, can be done? Well, there are possibilities, perhaps, as we'll hear from history professor, La- Professor Emeritus uh, Lawrence Whitner of SUNY, who has a new essay in Foreign Policy in Focus, not unrealistically titled Replacing a Disastrous War with a Just Peace in Ukraine. Professor Whitner, thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you. We see the incredible, seemingly indiscriminate carpet bombing of Gaza every day on our screens. The endless, shockingly brutal horror is pretty much beyond belief. With this new perspective, what used to dominate the videos of mainstream media, Russia's war on Ukraine has faded from the center of our view. Professor Whitner writes, Although the unfolding humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza has captured the world's horrified attention, the war in Ukraine has had even more terrible consequences. Really? How, how is it that we've missed it? How can that be? Pre- please, Professor Whitner, bring us back to the now faded from view destruction and human suffering in Ukraine. It's not a sideshow. Russia has actually been ramping it up lately. Do tell us, please, some of the details. Well, um, in the, the um, more distant past, um, with the, the first and uh, second year of the war, um, we've seen uh, hundreds of uh, thousands uh, of people killed. Uh, we've seen the uh, civilian infrastructure, uh, schools, hospitals, uh, uh, residential uh, developments uh, pounded by uh, Russian missiles. 
um, uh, destroying housing, uh, destroying uh, heating systems, uh, destroying uh, the water supply. Um, we've seen uh, perhaps a, a third of the uh, Ukrainian uh, populations turned into uh, refugees, mm. uh, displaced either to uh, foreign lands or within uh, uh, their own country to more uh, uh, distant um, uh, uh, sections of it. So it's been a disaster uh, for the people of Ukraine and for many uh, Russians who have died there mm. or have endured uh, imprisonment and repression at home for their uh, criticism of the war. Uh, furthermore, there's the ongoing uh, catastrophe of the uh, bloodshed at the front lines of the war, uh, increasingly like uh, trench warfare uh, in World War One. And there's the uh, renewed bombing, as you mentioned, uh, renewed uh, missile uh, strikes on uh, on heating uh, facilities and the uh, civilian infrastructure of Ukraine. So it's a disaster always around. And I can't help but think that the people of Ukraine had no idea it would be so intense and so horrible. But I do wonder, when it was ramping up, before Russia actually started the war in uh, the beginnings of 2022, weren't there indications that Russia was uh, worried, looking at history of invasions coming from the West, of NATO expanding? Was it a complete surprise to the people of Ukraine, do you think? Well, uh, it wasn't a complete surprise in that Ukraine had been uh, uh, colonized and uh, conquered in in the past right. uh, by the Russian Empire, uh, and uh, uh, Ukrainians of, of course had 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 suffered from uh, um, Stalin's uh, genocide during the 1930s when right. uh, four million uh, Ukrainians were uh, systematically uh, starved to death. Mm -hmm. So uh, the relationship between Ukraine uh, and Russia uh, had not been uh, very good. Uh, throughout uh, the uh, two nations' histories. Um, nonetheless, there was an assumption that uh, Russia would abide by international law, uh, uh, by the uh, treaties it had, it had signed with uh, Ukraine after uh, Ukraine was, was uh, freed uh, from the Russian uh, grasp with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the uh, Budapest Memorandum, for example, which, um, 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 in which the Russians uh, promised to respect the uh, territorial wow. integrity of Ukraine. Mm. So uh, the Ukrainians weren't totally uh, surprised. Uh, they had a history of uh, bad relations uh, with Russia, but nonetheless the, the assumption was, and I think uh, Zelensky's assumption too was, that uh, Russia wouldn't go so far as to actually uh, invade Ukraine and 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 cease to uh, restore it as part of the Russian Empire. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of the Russian uh, view of the West, uh, undoubtedly uh, they wouldn't have liked uh, Ukraine becoming part of NATO, but that was not imminent at the at the time, right. and and indeed it's still not imminent. Right. Uh, if the United States really wanted to make it part of NATO, it, it could do so now. Uh, indeed, uh, Finland and uh, Sweden uh, have both, after uh, a long period of non-alignment in the uh, Cold War, 
have both rushed to to uh, join NATO, uh, and Russia has done nothing uh, about that. But uh, so I think that uh, Russia's motives uh, uh, were not uh, defensive, mm. but were aggressive, namely uh, Putin's desire to restore the uh, Russian Empire as it had existed for uh, centuries. And that hasn't been as easy as he thought. And so the war has gone on. Yeah, there's something about little men showing their power. I don't know. There's a lot of damage that has been caused throughout history of people who fit that description. Oh, it's just unbelievable. But, you know, you talk about, in addition to the, the obvious human suffering by the people of Ukraine, which is unbelievable, one-third of the people, as you say, have been forced to move you say that the Ukraine war has, quote, consumed enough, uh, consumed enormous financial resources from nations around the world. Now, the destruction of whole neighborhoods and infrastructure, yeah, that, that's pretty obvious. We see what's going on. What is far less obvious is what you say. Tell us about the draining of resources from around the world. I'm not, not all that well versed on that. Well, um, we know, uh, of course, as Americans, that uh, the United States has, has poured, or the U.S. government has, has poured billions of dollars into uh, supporting uh, Ukraine's defense effort. Um, and many, many uh, civilian groups uh, have also uh, contributed to uh, hospital uh, supplies and other uh, emergency uh, relief for uh, Ukraine. But also uh, in Europe, there's been a, a, a tremendous outpouring of uh, governmental and uh, private aid for uh, embattled Ukraine. And in uh, perhaps uh, 50 countries uh, around the world, countries like uh, South Korea and Japan and Australia, uh, far from the the, uh, battlefront, there have been uh, substantial uh, contributions to the uh, Ukrainian defense effort. So it has, uh, the war itself has has uh, drained uh, considerable uh, resources uh, from nations around the world. Uh, furthermore, uh, the war has, has brought hardship to uh, nations uh, of what has been called the uh, third world, ah. uh, impoverished nations in, 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 in Africa and in the Middle East, um, thanks to the fact that the grain shipments that had been made from Ukraine in the past um, which had been, um, um, you know, barely affordable uh, by the people of those lands when they were buying their daily bread, um, have been uh, cut off by the uh, Russian military, uh, by the Russian fleet. Uh, the Ukrainians are now finding ingenious ways uh, to get around that, but nonetheless that has raised grain prices in the uh, third world and has uh, created a massive uh, starvation so that uh, that and oh and and that in turn has has caused increased uh, migration uh, from these lands uh, uh, straining the uh, relationships um, that uh, those countries and those peoples have had with the United States and the Europeans and other uh, countries mm. where these uh, starving people have fled. Um, finally, uh, there's been a drain of resources insofar as uh, there's been a warping of uh, priorities in, in many lands uh, thanks to the war. Uh, the war is uh, consuming 
um, uh, vast numbers of missiles and guns and tanks and planes and so on. Uh, and that's meant that other countries are uh, producing them uh, for the war-fighting uh, uh, parties, while they could be uh, producing solar panels and other things that are needed to head off the uh, climate uh, catastrophe or other uh, catastrophes that their uh, societies face. So uh, resources have been uh, drained off, uh, and um, the same investment, the same science, the same uh, productivity could have been uh, devoted to something uh, more worthwhile than simply uh, fighting a horrible war. So you're providing quite a few examples of, you know, it's not just out of the goodness of their hearts that, that people want to stop the war. It's costing a lot of resources. It's hurting an awful lot of countries that, as, as you point out, are nowhere near the Ukraine-Russia uh, trenches. But uh, it, 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 they have incentive to want peace. They certainly do. That uh, somehow we don't really think of all that often with the, with everything else that's grabbing our attention. And, you know, I, I've been supportive, as have most Americans, of, of Ukraine, of their offensive. And I have to acknowledge, I, I had my doubts last summer when Ukraine announced it was about to begin a major new offensive. Can you tell us details about the military situation there now? Has either side made significant progress? How has that major new offensive uh, come to pass? Well, uh, it hasn't gone very well for either side, actually. Um, it's been very uh, bloody, uh, both for uh, Ukrainians and for Russians. Um, and neither side has really made advances on the ground. Um, the the uh, Ukrainians, though, have... Um, uh, made uh, missile attacks on the uh, and and uh, drone attacks on the Russian uh, fleet in the Black Sea, and that has had a, a substantial effect with the um, uh, the Russian ships being uh, drawn uh, closer to home and away from the the uh, Ukrainians. Um, so there has been uh, progress on the sea, uh, but not on the land. Uh, when it comes to uh, Ukraine. Uh, the Russians, of course, enjoy uh, tremendous military advantages. Um, their, um, uh, their manpower is far greater since their uh, population is far greater. Um, their, um, th their economy is far larger uh, than the Ukrainian economy. Um, they uh, continue to, to sell oil and natural gas uh, to their, their, their friends or, or others and, and make a, a tidy uh, profit doing so. Mm. So uh, the Russians really have a, a, a better chance, on paper at least, to uh, win the war. Mm -hmm. uh, what's really amazing is that the Ukrainians have, have managed to do all they've done so far to uh, head off uh, Russia's uh, complete conquest of their nation. That is impressive. Well, when people are fighting for their homeland, <laughs> we know what happens. That's a significant uh, incentive. And so many countries have spent so much money. As far as I can tell, the U.S. has spent over $60 billion. European nations have invested over $90 billion. 
euros or dollars, whatever, and propping up Ukraine's defensive. The war appears to be at a stalemate. Both More and more people on both sides of the political aisle are questioning the wisdom of pouring more and more resources into the war, especially the Republicans in the U.S. Congress who are echoing some of the uh, uh, neutrality uh, feeling of the 1930s, and we know about that stuff. The U.S. and Europe, of course, are not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. Do, do they have the motivation, both, I mean, the U.S., yeah, it's questionable, and Europe, what about, in, about for, for European nations to keep increasing our aid and their aid? Well, uh, from the standpoint of Europe, I think the major motivation is the fear that if if uh, Russia can uh, simply uh, uh, send in its troops and its missiles and, and so on and uh, conquer uh, neighboring nations, uh, then uh, they can be uh, targets as well. So actually, the the highest level of um, opposition uh, to uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, comes uh, from Ukraine. And from East European nations that were uh, previously under uh, Russian domination during the Cold War, and even uh, before that during yeah. the Russian Empire, and uh, uh, <laughs> they definitely don't want to be conquered. Um, and um, uh, beyond that, uh, there's a, a, a sense that uh, uh, international law has to be maintained. Uh-huh. That if if um, uh, the world is not to be run as as the U.S. Wild West uh, used to be run, with uh, marauding gangs of gunmen simply coming in uh, whenever they could, uh, in which uh, might made 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 right. right, right. Then uh, something has to be done about it. Uh, the real question is whether simply uh, continuing uh, the war as it's been going on is the best way to address this this uh, crisis. In, in international peace and security. And, of course, there are other options. There's something called the United Nations, which we will get to as this discussion goes on. They have some uh, possibilities that they... Uh, it does get complicated, for sure. There are politics and uh, playing to one's strength involved in it. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Emeritus Lawrence Whitner of SUNY, who's talking about a new article in Foreign Policy and Focus titled Re- uh, Replacing a Disastrous War with a Just Peace in Ukraine. A just peace. Boy, that has a nice ring to it. Is it completely Pollyannish? I don't think so. As we'll go on, we'll find out maybe it's not. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we in the United States, a lot of us people were um, out on the streets making a lot of noise. Johnson and Nixon said, no, it didn't matter. They didn't listen to us that public opinion was not a factor in their context of their wars, but it clearly was. You observed that in increasingly authoritarian Russia, public sentiment against war seems unlikely to alter the Putin administration's determination to triumph on the battlefield. Is that, does it not matter at all? I mean, why, why would they bother with crackdowns on dissent if it doesn't matter anyway? Well, I think that uh, passive uh, public opposition doesn't matter in an authoritarian state, uh-huh. but um, uh, but uh, massive uh, rebellion and resistance uh, could matter. 
uh, for example, a resistance to to uh, serving in, in the armed forces. Uh-huh. And there has been a substantial opposition on those lines. Uh, hundreds of thousands of young men uh-huh. have uh, fled Russia. Uh, maybe a million Russians have fled Russia. Uh, that number, uh, um, uh, of course, in- includes families of young men that are uh, fleeing fleeing the the uh, Russian draft. So. Uh, that, I think, does matter uh, to the Russian government. Yeah, and they certainly don't want an uprising by the uh, public uh, against uh, continuing the war. Um, but still, uh, authoritarian states are uh, pretty good at uh, putting down a popular rebellion and have, have uh, done so uh, fairly effectively in many cases. Yes. Um, uh, so... Um, at this point, it looks like neither side, that is, neither the uh, Ukrainians, who are uh, determined to defend their, their homeland, and polls show that 80% uh, percent of the public there in Ukraine uh, is willing to, to uh, fight on as long as Russia uh, continues to occupy any part of their country. And um, uh, the war seems likely uh, to go on, given the fact that the Russian public is... Uh, mostly passive at this point, although underground, there's a great deal of uh, grumbling uh, and dismay. Yeah, you you have one quote, very interesting quote uh, where somebody is a Russian citizen is being asked how he or she feels about the war. Thank you for the opportunity not to testify against myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, why would you answer a, a, a question like that? Uh, truthfully, when expressing opposition uh, to the war could get you thrown into jail for 7, 10, uh, 15 years. Oh, yeah. uh, so that, uh, and, and uh, some uh, 20,000 Russians uh, have been arrested uh, wow. in the war um, for uh, criticizing the war. Jeez, I didn't know. Is that, so, that's amazing. Yeah. So. Right, right. So uh, it's. It's really very heroic to express public opposition to the war. Yeah, that is, it takes a, a great deal of chutzpah, as they would say. Uh, as, as far as is known, the Ukrainians are solidly committed to not compromising any territory with the Russians. Couldn't there be a greater chance for peace if, say, Crimea was given up? That's in the southern part. It's kind of a separate area. Would, would that really be an unacceptable price to pay? And if so, why? Is it just the idea of no land whatsoever? Well, uh, uh, Crimea is in, in a somewhat different uh, situation than the rest of Ukraine, in that uh, it's been more heavily uh, settled um, by, by uh, Russians in the past. Uh, it's been more sympathetic to, to uh, Russia than other regions, um, and uh, that had been the historic home of the Russian uh, Black Sea Fleet. Um, uh, so the Russians really want that, uh, and the Ukrainians uh, had had accepted that in the the past. Um, uh, nonetheless, uh, I think feelings are very high, and so while in the end, if if a, a negotiated settlement took place. Uh, it might in- involve some kind of compromise on uh, Crimea. 
such as a uh, plebiscite of the population uh-huh. as to what they want, rather than what the Russians want or, or what the uh, uh, Ukrainian government wants. Uh, at this point, I don't think uh, a settlement's likely unless there's uh, a, a, a settlement, including uh, Crimea, is likely unless there's some sort of uh, uh, agreement on a negotiated uh, settlement or a total exhaustion uh, with mm. the war. Total exhaustion. That happened in the First World War. Uh, yes. can happen again. And there is so much there for us to learn from history, which is why, of course, bringing the discussion back to domestic politics, which is why the, the Trumpist party, the Republicans, is so opposed to paying attention to and learning from history. They don't want to learn from history. There's so much we can learn. In the 1930s, in part of the U.S., uh, part of the opposition to foreign entanglements came from a large, I don't know if it was a majority, but a large segment of the population had seen the horrible, useless folly in the First World War in their lifetimes. Another segment of American opinion was not just opposed to the U.S. getting involved in the Second World War, but was actually supportive of the German fascists. Do you think, Professor Widner, are we seeing an echo of that isolationism within the Republican Party of today? Oh, I think uh, that's absolutely the case. Wow. Uh, isolationism uh, during the 1930s uh, tended to be heavily, uh, not totally, uh, Republican. Uh, remember, the, the, the party in power uh, was a Democratic Party, so the resistance to its uh, collective security policies uh, came mostly uh, from the Republicans. Uh, and the Republicans um, were, in, in fact, rather hawkish when it uh, came to Asia, uh, and thus uh, Pearl Harbor helped, helped to bring them in finally uh-huh. to uh, collect security. But um, w- when it came to Europe, um, which uh, the Republicans um, uh, were far more hostile to and, and far more uh, sympathetic to the uh, fascist uh, regimes of Germany and Italy, um, and, and later of uh, Franco, um, the, the uh, Republicans were willing to uh, accept a, a fascist victory. Uh, they said it didn't matter. The United States should stay isolated. Uh, hmm. And, uh, you know, therefore, I think what we're seeing is that that same uh, tolerance for uh, right-wing uh, regimes, such as uh, Putin's regime, uh, or for that matter, uh, the right-wing regime in, in Hungary, or for the uh, French right-wing uh, led by uh, Marine Le Pen and, right. and so on. There, there's been a resurrection of the European right, and uh, Republicans actually have much in common uh, with that uh, European right wing. And, mm. and uh, sometimes they bring leaders of it back to the United States to, to, to talk at, at uh, uh, conservative gatherings. Wow. Yeah, it's back when there used to be, you know, lots of cars driving around with uh, Ukrainian flag stickers on the cars and lots of Ukrainian flags. It seemed like, well, maybe I live in a bubble here. I don't know. But it seemed like the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people did support the Ukrainians fighting for their 
freedom, their democracy against, as limited as it, as it may have been, against the, the fascist uh, invaders from Russia. And uh, now we see, it's, it's almost surprising to me, it's certainly disappointing that we see Republicans who are like openly siding with with the Putinistas. It's just it's right. uh, it, it, it's very very surprising. I mean, who would have thunk it? I grew up in the fifties when the idea of, of Russia certainly would never be the Republicans supporting them. Whew, boy, have things changed? <laughs> but. That was a communist uh, regime right. at that time. Right. This is a right-wing regime, right. and, 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 and therefore it's comparable to the 1930s when the Republicans were willing to uh, uh, play uh, footsie with, with uh, fascist powers and maintain uh, good relations with them rather than uh, oppose their, their uh, conquest of the rest of Europe. Ah, uh, yes, playing footsie with the fascists. <laughs> One can just picture it, and that has been the case a, a few times in American history, and it's often surprising, but it is there, and it is there for us to importantly learn from history if we pay attention to it. We happen to be talking to a uh, pro history professor emeritus, uh, Lawrence Whitner, and uh, he, I imagine, agrees it's important to learn from history. We're talking on Keeping Democracy Alive with his article. He's about his article he's written in Foreign Policy and Focus, uh, the title of which is Replacing uh, a Disastrous War with a Just Peace in Ukraine. And there are people on the left in America, of which, frankly, I tend to be one. And you write that some leftists with an anti-American slant see Russian victory as a useful way of somehow destroying U.S. imperialism. Well, I am... I consider myself a patriotic leftist. I, I believe in the aspirations of our founding documents, and I despise imperialism, be it American or any other militaristic nationalism. And let's face it, a lot of the world does see the war in Ukraine as being related to the threat of, of, of Russia that they felt from a possible expanded NATO. Apparently that wasn't really the case, but a lot of people are thinking that anyway. Uh, we want to keep Ukraine in our sphere of influence and not theirs. Is there really no degree of U.S. imperialism at stake in Ukraine at all? Well, I don't think there's any that, that, that matters. Uh -huh. uh, 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 Russia... Uh, uh, was never endangered by uh, NATO. Uh, NATO right. was formed in 1949. Uh, NATO uh, never attacked Russia. Uh, never uh, uh, moved toward 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 doing so. Uh, NATO was a uh, a, a defensive uh, alliance, and whether it, uh, Western Europe needed that defense or not, uh, the fact was NATO didn't engage in in uh, aggressive. Uh, attacks on the the uh, Soviet Union, and NATO hasn't uh, attacked the the uh, post-Soviet Union, uh, Russia, nor is it doing so uh, today. Um, so uh, I don't I don't think that's a uh, a major uh, motive for um, uh, for NATO, and I don't think that was a major fear uh, of Russia. Um, uh, NATO is still not willing to add uh, Ukraine to its, um, right. uh, its camp. Um, uh, the U.S. government has, has, in fact, been very cautious uh, when it's responded to uh, Russian uh, aggression. 
uh, it, it was cautious when the uh, Soviet Union moved into Hungary in 1956. Right. The United States and NATO didn't lift a, a uh, finger. Yeah. Uh, it, they were cautious when the Soviet Union moved into uh, Czechoslovakia yes. in 1968. Uh, they didn't intervene in any uh, Soviet-dominated state. They, they never uh, attacked the uh, Soviet Union. And they're still not willing to admit uh, Ukraine into NATO. Um, so I don't, I don't think that's, that's a major factor. Perhaps it's a minor factor. Uh, I'm sure uh, Russia doesn't like NATO and would rather countries not, not, not join it. But I think uh, the real uh, motivation for uh, Putin was restoring the uh, right. Russian Empire of the past. Um, this, uh, uh, this imperialist nostalgia right. that I've mentioned on your uh, program uh, in a uh, past interview, and I think that's really uh, what's what's going on here. I think uh, Putin is jealous of NATO. That's his view as well. If the United States can have allied nations that are uh, linked to it militarily, uh, why shouldn't we? And and so on. Uh, why shouldn't we hold on to uh, Ukraine? And why shouldn't we intervene in uh, Syria? And why shouldn't we be in Africa? Uh, and, and, and so on and so on. Um, uh, that's his, his thinking. He wants restoration of, of, of empire and imperialism on, on Russia's part. And he's jealous uh, of U.S. imperialism. And if he, he says, well, they can get away with it, why can't we? Uh, why, why, does my, why do I keep getting this image of, of, of bad little boys in a schoolyard? <laughs> you know, hey, it's just ridiculous. You know, they were since uh, they want to be imperial as well, uh, right? You no, know, that's just that's no way to run the world. Speaking of running the no. world, <laughs> let's turn to a discussion of, of now to what you ask: Is there a way to secure a just settlement of the Ukraine war? What about the possibility of getting getting around? The Russian government's veto in the United Nations Security Council of U.S. action to impose a peace settlement, and uh, in, in U.N. action, rather, to impose a peace settlement in Ukraine. What about such possibilities? Is they with, are they within the realm of possibility? Um, yes, I think uh, uh -huh. such action is. Um, the uh, Security Council of the United Nations is the body of that world entity, that is uh, supposed to handle um, uh, international peace and uh, security. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, the UN was uh, set up to maintain international peace and security. Uh, and uh, so the uh, Security Council has, has um, uh, five uh, permanent members, and uh, there are also another five um, uh, members that are... Uh, 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 rotating members, the permanent members have a, a, a veto power, and those right. nations are, uh, are Russia, China, the United States, Britain, and France. Well, um, uh, originally, um, nations that in the, uh, well, the uh, permanent members of the uh, Security Council um, would abstain when there be a right. vote in the uh, Security Council um, on, 
on on action uh, to be taken to uh, secure the peace. Um, uh, thanks to the fact that Article uh, 27 of the UN Charter mm-hmm. says that that's what they should do. That is, parties to a dispute are supposed to abstain uh, from uh, Security Council votes. Um, but oh, and that that's what happened from 1946 to 1952. Um, however, um, since that time, these five permanent members. Um, largely to safeguard their own interests, that is, they wanted a, uh, to, to have uh, impunity themselves when it came to a Security Council action to maintain the peace, um, they would use the, the uh, veto even though they were a party to a dispute. Mm. And that's what happened in the uh, Ukraine situation um, when the issue of of uh, Russia's invasion came to the UN Security Council uh, in in early uh, 2022, um, uh, the Russians simply vetoed uh, Security Council action. So they they blocked the UN from uh, taking action that the vast majority of the nations of the world wanted. When there were votes in the General Assembly, where there's no veto, uh, of course, the the votes went something like 141 to to five, <laughs> the the five being the five. Uh, Russia, uh, um, uh, Russia, um, uh, North Korea, uh, and 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 so on. So uh, uh-huh. the overwhelming majority of nations um, uh, wanted Ukraine, as the General Assembly voted, to. Uh, I'm sorry, wanted Russia as the General Assembly uh, voted, uh, to withdraw from Ukraine and, and stated that there was no justification for this invasion. But, of course, the uh, General Assembly uh, is not charged with maintaining international peace and security, mm-hmm. while the uh, Security Council is. So the uh, Security Council has been paralyzed thanks to that uh, veto exercised in this case uh, by the Russians, but in terms of other uh, situations, uh, France and Algeria, uh, <laughs> whether it was a, a, a French veto or, or uh, in, in other uh, crucial uh, situations, such as the recent uh, vote on the uh, Gaza uh, crisis, mm-hmm. uh, where the United States vetoed uh, Security Council action. Um, so uh, the great powers, these these uh, veto-wielding powers have mm. blocked the U.N. from doing the job that it's supposed to be doing. And I'm uh, mm. suggesting, and it has been more generally uh, suggested too, but I'm suggesting that the U.N. Charter be en- enforced so that parties to a dispute, such as um, uh, Russia in the Ukraine situation, uh, uh, lose their vote when it comes um, uh, to that situation. That would be nice. That would be nice. I wonder if they could do that, though. But doesn't, I mean, it, it, it's interesting that there was that robust period uh, when, when the U.N. played by the rules from 1946 through 1952. It was a rather productive period. But doesn't the existence of this U.N. Security Council by itself guarantee that really nothing can be done to end wars if 
one of the members is a participant in that war. Well, uh, it doesn't guarantee it. If the UN Charter uh, excludes that that uh, party's veto power, right. <laughs> so but... that is, if the the uh, Charter were enforced by the United Nations, there you go. Uh, and 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 if the the major powers weren't blocking that enforcement, you know, twisting every arm so they were not ruled out of order for their violation of the UN Charter, then we would have a more effective United Nations. Now, there are other ways uh, to get around uh, the veto, too. And okay. I don't mention it yeah, please in do. The article. But uh, one of them is uh, uniting for, for peace uh, resolution of the General Assembly. Um, th- this was voted for um, for the first time in uh, November of 1950 during the uh, Korean War, when the uh, Security Council uh, was once again uh, uh, paralyzed, and uh, the the uh, General Assembly voted in, in this resolution that if the Security Council can't do its job or isn't doing its job then action has to be taken by the General Assembly to enforce international peace and security. They were uniting for peace, you see. And therefore, uh, the the, uh, General Assembly would uh, call the shots, so to speak, when it it, it came to enforcement of the UN Charter. Uh, And um, that that, uh, uniting for peace resolution has been... um, uh, reenacted uh, numerous times since that time. It has not been uh, reenacted in any meaningful way during the Ukraine war, but it could be. So that that too would, would be a way to get around um, the UN Security Council veto that has hamstrung the agency that is supposed to enforce international peace and security. Wow. So there are possibilities, there are roads less taken. Whoa. That's right. Yes, we know throughout history, those roads less taken could have saved an awful lot of lives and limbs and kept some people uh, from uh, losing their minds, as they did from seeing the uh, the horror of war that was just against uh, who they are. And one person I never heard of that you talk about in your article, she sounds pretty impressive, Louise Blaze. I hope I pronounced that right. Maybe it's Blay. Canada's yeah. ambassador to the United Nations from 2017 to 2021. T- tell us about, about who she is and what she has recently pointed out that's significant well, to this um, discussion. Yeah, uh, in her role as uh, uh, Canada's ambassador uh, to the United Nations, she had a uh, good opportunity uh, to see what the great powers, what the, the big five there uh, did in the uh, Security Council. And uh, she was very uh, disgusted and uh, frustrated by that. And just recently, uh, she published a, a, a piece in an online uh, publication called Pass Blue, which is um, uh, a, a publication that examines the workings of the United Nations. Oh, wow. And what hmm. Blaze uh, pointed out was that, um, uh, you know, Article uh, 27, as I've said, um, uh, says that a, a a party to a dispute coming before the uh, Security Council um, um, should or must abstain must, right. when it comes to a vote. Uh, uh, you know, uh, can't use its veto power. 
Uh, and uh, uh, she said, well, uh, you know, they, they let Russia off the hook then. She can't understand why they would do so. Mm. Uh, they shouldn't do so, but they did. Uh, she said they didn't have the uh, courage, uh, uh, she maintains, to uh, call Russia to account. And she says that uh, her view of why they lack the courage to do so is that each of the veto-wielding powers, Russia, China, uh, the United States, Britain, and France, likes to maintain its own veto. That is, it, 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 it wants that uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, yeah. so to speak, that it, 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 it has in its, in its pocket. And so uh, it, it wants to be able uh, to use it uh, when it's... Uh, its interests seem seem, uh, threatened. So, um, in a way, what she's saying is that the other nations of the United Nations have to get together and and say, uh, we're not going to be uh, bullied uh, by you folks. We're going to enforce the the charter, and we're going to uh, see to it that we can act to uh, secure the peace. Wow. So that's... It's there is strength in numbers. There is strength in numbers, and th- th- many of these countries that, as you point out, that are that are hurting because, for example, they're not getting the grain that they used to get. They're not right. feeding. They're not feeding their people. They have a direct interest in doing something for peace and pushing these bad guys, these badly behaved little boys in the schoolyard, into to doing something about it. But so they could in theory, do that. And she has criticized, and you brought up, I had, I had, I suppose, conveniently forgotten France and Algeria. Yeah, of course they wouldn't, yeah. they wouldn't allow that. Right. <laughs> but she, she, uh, Louise Blay has uh, criticized the four nations of the Security Council, the, the, the UK, China, France, and the US, uh, for having uh, called zero interest in supporting such a move for fear it would limit their own power in the future. Uh-huh. Right. Now we're talking what's really perhaps some of the uh, real politics, limiting their own power in the future. How does that work? Well, uh, <laughs> as I said, they have this uh, get out of jail free or this uh, impun- acting with, with uh, impunity card there uh, up their sleeve, and they, they didn't uh, plan to give it up. Now, uh, let me talk more broadly, though, uh, about world history. Sure. Um, and that is that uh, throughout history, the the great powers have tended to have their way, unless yeah. they're, of course, uh, defeated by other great powers. Yeah. But uh, it's been the, the, the big fish that have uh, swallowed the little fish and the big dogs that have uh, bullied the little dogs uh, and so on. So uh, uh, they want that to continue. And so yeah. when they uh, yeah. created the United Nations, they they saw to it that they would have this uh, insurance policy for themselves, right? But you know, the little powers wouldn't have it. But the little powers are are, are getting uh, frustrated with that sort of, sort of thing. They've been uh, frustrated uh, by it, for example, when it comes to nuclear weapons. Uh, they don't like the fact that a few a few major powers uh, monopolize nuclear weapons, right. and they're uh, supposed to go around as the uh, potential victims mm. of these great powers. Tail between so the legs, they, yeah. yeah. And, and have increasingly pressed for 
a, a treaty to ban all nuclear weapons. Uh-huh. And that's why the uh, Treaty on the uh, Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was uh, passed in uh, uh, 2000, I'm trying to remember the year, um, in any case, during the uh, Trump era. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, um, most of the uh, smaller nations have signed on to it. But none of the nuclear powers have, have signed on to it because they like to be exercising the kind of power they do and have the ultimate weapon. So there's a, a built-in um, tension between uh, smaller nations, and that includes Canada, although it's, uh, geography makes it. Right, but, but it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's not a great power. No. Uh, you know, the, the tension between nations like Canada and nations like the United States and, and uh, Russia and China uh, in which the smaller powers feel they're getting pushed around and they're the victims of aggression and they think it's time for this to stop and have a, a powerful United Nations that can enforce mm. the peace rather than relying on the great powers. A genuine United Nations. And I know we're not talking about uh, the Israeli state's war in Gaza, but there's a lot of nations in the world that can that obviously sympathize with with Palestine and the, and they want to do something about it but without the involvement of the great powers i mean neither israel nor palestine is in the uh security council but one would think that at least in theory the little fish could gang up and do something about this is it is it at all realistic I mean, we've seen the United Nations have been around a long time. They've taken their hits, Lord knows, through the years. That there's been this faction that used to be considered far right. They wanted to get the U.S. out of the U.N., get the U.N. out of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And now they seem to be uh, on the ascent. But, but is, it, is it at all realistic to talk about the United Nations doing its job, being able to do something about it, and actually bringing peace to Ukraine? Go on that for well, me. I think it, it's the most promising way to do that and to bring peace to uh, Gaza as well. Uh, a, a powerful United Nations would be able to uh, enforce the peace as it's uh, supposed to do, uh, according to its charter, uh, and would, would not be um, uh, limited by the, by the preferences of one or more great powers that can simply uh, veto things in the U.N. Security Council. Uh, so uh, in, empowering the United Nations to act, uh, stripping uh, the, the uh, great powers of their veto, uh, going around them through the General Assembly, for example, as well, mm-hmm. would uh, give the United Nations the, the power to actually do the things that it's been uh, set up, at least on, on paper, uh, to be doing. I wonder if, I mean, Biden has been rather disturbingly quiet on the U.S. involvement in the war on Gaza, but obviously they, they want very much to uh, continue aid to, uh, to Ukraine. Do you see any, any action in the Biden administration part to beef up the, the power of the little guys in the, in the United Nations? I'm not sure I'm seeing it, but boy, it'd be nice. Well, I don't think that, that, that any of the leaders of the great powers are, are anxious uh, to <laughs> give up their veto and to uh, um, 
uh, to become uh, just another nation in the United Nations. Uh, that is, they want to exercise power, uh, as they've always done, or nations, well, as the great powers have always done uh, throughout uh, world history. But uh, I think that in terms of the public, um, the, the public should be uh, demanding that the great powers uh, step aside, stop uh, vetoing things. Uh, if they won't do that, uh, strip them of the veto and, and, and make the United Nations uh, the uh, enforcement body uh, for world peace, wow. rather just leaving this to uh, one or more uh, great powers to um, uh, fight it out. Uh, in in uh, proxy wars or to uh, veto what the vast majority of the world's nations want. Uh, in the in in yeah. terms of the Gaza situation, it's uh, pretty clear uh, what the vast majority of the world's nations want. Yeah. They want a, a ceasefire there. Yes. They want a a, a two state uh, solution. They want an end to the Israeli occupation of, of uh, Palestine. Right. Uh, they want a return to the uh, settlement that the UN worked out back in, in 1947, uh, 48. Right. And, uh, 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 two states living uh, side by side in, in peace and, uh, security. And it's time to, uh, restore the UN to the, um, the power or uh, give the UN the, the power that it's uh, supposed to have and uh, create that kind of situation in Gaza, and uh, create that kind of uh, situation in Eastern Europe and around the world. Well, we can't, I mean, yeah, I suppose we could just throw up our hands and give up and say, ah, that's the way it goes. But, you know, the, the aspiration has been there since Woodrow Wilson, who's still uh, looked up to in terms of, you know, creating the League of Nations, which failed similarly, on, I, I believe, on yeah. similar kind of situations with the great powers. They just couldn't do it. But the people, the people, we are not powerless. What can we do? If you're just talking to the, to the average citizen here, what, we, we want peace in Ukraine. We, we don't want those Russians in there. And, you know, we want peace in uh, Gaza as well. What can people do? Is, it, is there anything? Well, I think people here uh, can, can oppress their government uh, for a, uh, a UN enforced settlement, mm -hmm. and I think that people in other other lands uh, should rally around that that notion. Uh, there are uh, um, uh, probably uh, substantial numbers of such people yes. in the uh, smaller powers uh, who want the UN uh, to play a major role. If you uh, talk to the average uh, Swede or Finn or or uh, uh, or um, uh, Spaniard, I think there's a lot of oh, yeah. uh, sentiment uh, for uh, supporting uh, UN settlements in those wars. Uh, I think if you talk to the average person in the great powers, there's less sentiment right. for that, because they're all uh, blown up with, with pride and power and feel uh, their country uh, should rule the world. Sure. And we have to challenge that, that, that sort of thing. Yes. Um, the the uh, MAGA uh, Republicans uh, yeah. believe that uh, their country is the greatest country in the history of the world, blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. And therefore, it, it should not give up power to uh, a world organization. Mm. But I think most people around the world do want that. And I think we as Americans should, should, should join them in enhancing U.N. power 
and uh, decreasing the the power of the major nations. I could not agree more. Professor Whitner, it's always good to talk to you. There's, there's hope here. You know, it, it, it's going to take a while. It doesn't happen easily. Uh, but uh, the idea that uh, we don't get to, you know, play the big gorilla on the block forever, it doesn't serve us in the long run. It just doesn't serve us in the long run. It doesn't serve humanity in the long run. There are other options. The UN was created for a reason. Let's make it work. If people are interested in reading more of your articles, I guess Foreign Policy and Focus is a play to go, or maybe there's something else on the Internet. Well, they can uh, check my website. It's um, lawrencewhitner.com. Uh, Whitner is spelled W-I-T-T-N-E-R. Uh-huh. So I, I have these articles also posted on my website, uh, as well as links to my various books. Thank you so much for being there with us. We'll talk to you again sometime. Let's hope for some uh, progress. Possibly. Yes. Maybe it could happen. Thank you so much. Thank you. enjoyed that discussion don't miss a single show subscribe it's all free and if you find the information valuable your friends probably do too please ask them to also subscribe it's on apple spotify progressive radio network stitcher iHeartRadio, and of course the website keepingdemocracyalive.com thanks very much <laughs>